A reading from the book of 1 Corinthians. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think that they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin... I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. The word of the Lord. Strange thing happened on a flight from L.A. to Detroit recently. The actress, Amy Adams, from Castle Rock, was on board to fly to Detroit to do a, a new movie shoot. She took her seat, first class, course and then she decided to do something that she'd always thought about doing she was sitting there an american soldier walked back to the coach seats took his seat there was another reporter sitting in first class who saw amy quietly call for the flight attendant and told the flight attendant that she wanted to switch seats with the soldier so amy went back and took her seat in coach didn't know the soldier the soldier came and sat, surprised look on his face, first class, didn't know who did it. Well, the reporter, of course, when they landed, tweeted the whole thing out to the press. The next day, the press interviewed Amy Adams. Why did you do that? Amy said, first, because my father served in our military. And second, this is not to bring attention to me. This is to bring attention to the troops. Wouldn't it be great if we could all belong to a community where that kind of preferring grace is not the exception, but the rule. Wouldn't it be great if that kind of preferring grace captured us and characterized us, a place where the strong care for the weak? I'm suggesting that that place can be the church. Now, I know many of us that's not been our experience of the church. The church has disappointed us. The church has frustrated us. We don't always feel that the church is that place of preferring grace. I'd ask you humbly 
to set aside your experience for a moment and look beyond to the vision of Jesus and the early church who call us still today to be a place of preferring grace. In fact, in our text that Jennifer just read, here's the big idea. It's the only verb in the whole chapter. And it's this, be careful. That, that means watch, focus, see that the exercise of your first class seat, I mean your rights, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Everything hangs on the church being a place of preferring grace. The problem is, it's hard to do, right? Do I need to tell you that sometimes Christians have trouble getting along? Do I need to tell you that? Well, one quick story. I read about this last week, Church in the Midwest. In one month, lost 15% of their membership. Here's why. The high school baseball team had a tournament, was a long ways away, got back late at night. Several of these same boys all went to the same church. The mom there said, why don't you all stay at my house? I'll let you sleep till the last possible moment, get you up, roll out, we'll go to church together. They did. On the way to the church, the mom driving says, oh, you guys hair, you know, you have bed hair. So she said it would be good if they wore their baseball hats to hide their bed hair during the worship. And they did. Well, as you can imagine, some of the seniors in the worship thought that that was a very disrespectful thing to do, to wear their baseball hats during worship. So they complained to the pastors and the elders. When news of that got out, the parents of the kids, the boys, were very upset because they felt that their sons were being unfairly criticized for wearing their hats during worship. And the long of the short is that in one month, 15% of the membership left over a baseball hat in worship. Maybe if it was this hat, it would have been okay, but <laughs> can you think of other things that Christians fight about? Shout them out. Politics. Can't trump that. What else? Music. <laughs> oh. Wow. <laughs> Gabe, strike that from the tape on the length of sermon. What else? That's good. Mo what? Money. Alcohol. Kids' ministry. Smoking. All kinds of smoking. Yeah. What, Keith? Clothing. You got, yeah. So, divorce. So we get this, right? We see this. We see that Christians have a hard time sometimes getting along and that often these things, we would say, right, are not like crucial to the Gospel. We could say they're secondary issues. They're issues on which Christians agree to disagree. The problem is we don't do that well. So the text today is much about how Christians agree to disagree and still love each other and have a place that practices preferring grace. Alright? Let's go to Corinth. The issue in Corinth was food. Food fight! 
meat sacrifice to idols, and you're going, okay, take us back. Let's see what that's about. Here's what it's about. There was two groups in the Corinth, Corinthian church. Paul had received this in a letter. He's responding to the letter. In the letter it said that there was this one group that was angry at a, another group. And here's why. This other group was going to pagan temples in their dining halls for social events and family gatherings. And in the pagan dining hall, they were eating meat or food that had been sacrificed to Apollos or Athena. It had either been actually sacrificed to them or when someone prayed over the food, they prayed in the name of Apollos or Athena. There were those that Paul's going to call the strong who said, look, you know, really apply your theology here. There's no such thing as an idol. So there's no such thing as idol food. Pass the ribs. And then there's this other, this other group that was angry was saying, wait a minute, don't you understand? That food was offered to idols. We can't go back there. That's just so many bad memories in my head about when I lived that life. We can't do that. So Paul calls the angry group the weak. He calls the eating group the strong. Let's talk about the weak for a, for a moment. The weak were those, it says in the text, whose conscience cannot protect them from feeling guilty about doing that. Their conscience isn't yet in that particular issue immersed enough in the grace of God that they can't eat without feeling condemned. Often the weak are those people who are, as they grow in their Christ journey, still kind of temperamentally fixed they're not comfortable with gray areas. They, um, they need everything spelled out for them on every issue. This is right. This is wrong. Those, are, Paul says, are, are the weak. It's, it's like, um, it's like a, a bridge. Let's use the, the metaphor of a bridge. Christ comes to all of us. There's no way we could get to heaven. No way we could get to relationship with God if Jesus hadn't spread His arms on the cross with the bread of heaven, the cup of salvation, and laid Himself out so that we could cross the bridge and go to heaven. But on certain issues, those who are weak in conscience still come up to that bridge. They know Jesus is the way. They know that He's the one who's made it possible for them to know God. But yet they still look over the cliff or off the edge of the bridge and there's still some things there that are scary to them. Certain issues that trouble them. And so when they cross the bridge, you know, they get down on their hands and knees and they stay right to the middle and they don't look on either side. This, they just walk the Christian life kind of like this. That's the weak. A weak conscience. The strong are like, Cliff? What cliff? All I see is the bridge. Jesus. He has made me free. They just walk right across. Paul's point to the strong is when you walk across the bridge, be sure that you do not kick the weak off. His topic sentence. You noticed in the text, right, that Paul started twice. I think it's because he's getting a little ramped up. A little ramped up. But notice this topic sentence. Romans, or, uh, Romans. 1 Corinthians 8, 1-3. Paul introduces the subject by saying, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know it as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Two really important things as Paul is kind of setting the table here for his instruction on how we uh, become a preparing grace community. First, it's important to know that these remarks are tilted. 
directed to whom? The strong. Those who know. The strong are to bear the weak so that the weak don't break. So all of the instruction and the burden of relationship for any secondary issue, the burden of bend is on the strong. In other words, as Paul says at the end, look, you've got to stop eating ribs if that's offending someone in your life. You've got to stop. The burden is on the strong not to exercise their freedom to hurt somebody. So, saying that, the second important thing, so the burden's on the strong, and notice what God measures here. This is really important. He says knowledge is important. We all possess knowledge. But if it's just knowledge, knowledge for self-consumption puffs up. The purpose of knowledge and the purpose of us learning more about God is to love others. So God, listen, He doesn't value how much you know as much as He values how much you use what you know to love others. That's what matters. And he says the test here, whether you've really experienced the depth of God's love, is by how you treat your weaker sister and brother. So he lays those two big things right down in front of us and says, look, I'm talking to the strong. You bend so the weak don't break. And I'm talking about what matters to me most is love. It's great that you memorize a theology book. But if that theology book doesn't have the outcome of you loving others, especially weaker brothers and sisters who annoy you and frustrate the heck out of you over these secondary issues, if you can't love them, you're not using the knowledge like I want you to use. All right? So we, we start there. Now Paul's going to actually model it for us. He's going to model how we engage Weaker brothers or sisters about whom we might disagree on various issues, Paul's going to model how to have this conversation. So he begins in verse 4 and says, look, first of all, let's have some theological discussion. And what we have in these three verses is a primer, an awesome primer on idolatry in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says. It's, It's amazing. He says, so then, and he starts again, about eating food to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, idols, yet for for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So Paul's first point is that, look, think your theology here. If there's only one true God, then idols are nothing, and therefore idol food is nothing. You know, there's nothing in the meat that is, uh, can hurt you inside or around it or above it. It's just meat. Because there's no idols. Because there's one true God. So Paul thinks the logic of his theology through. But then the way this outburst of of what he says about Jesus is spectacular. I mean, it's nosebleed. We're so high. Because what he's saying when he says there's one true God, there's echoes there of Israel, right? And the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what Paul is doing is saying, that's Israel's God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
But Jesus, God's Son, is also that Lord. L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Jesus is Lord. He's the one God. He's the one Son of God from the Father. So all that is true of the Father is true of Jesus. Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. So the Father, it says, all things came from Him. He's the Creator. Everything that is, everything we are, He made. But He's also the Director of everything. Everything uh, exists for Him. And you and I exist for Him. But what's true of the Father is true of Christ. Christ too is the Creator and the Sustainer. And notice the interesting change of preposition. Through whom we live. So, there's the Father, Creator, Sustainer. There's Jesus, Creator, and Sustainer. But Jesus is the one, get this, who takes us to the Father. Jesus is the one who establishes connection and relationship to the Father. As Jesus Himself put it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. There's this massive pioneering moment here in the early church where Paul explosively says this is who Jesus is every Christian begins with this knowledge that Jesus is Lord he's the connection to the father now I want to think about some implications real quickly let's apply that a little bit to our lives so when we see first of all that Jesus is the creator uh, come with me a little bit on that I mean we, we saw when he was with us for those three years during his ministry, we saw a glimpse of this, did we not? Like, for instance, when he was the smartest man that ever lived. So, like, at a wedding reception, when they were running out of the wine, his mother comes to him and says, can you help? And Jesus, sp he spoke, and the water became wine. And in another place, when they were having a, a teaching session, Jesus teaching, teaching, getting late at night, there's 20,000 people there and all that they have to eat is five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus tells the disciples, feed them. And they're like, what? you got to be crazy. So Jesus blesses it and feeds 20,000 people from five loaves and two fish. He could play on the energy matter equation like no one else could. From the exercise of his vocal cords, he could calm an entire sea. The exercise of his vocal cords cursed a fig tree. And then from his voice, he could take dead human tissue and call it back into life. Who is this man? This is Jesus. And he not only has that creative power, he has the sustaining power. In Hebrews it says that he upholds all things by the power of his word. Now, did some reading this week. Do you know that right now, sitting where you are, you are traveling a thousand miles an hour? That's right. The earth is spinning on its axis. And you are spinning a thousand miles an hour. feel it do you feel it now if that's not cool enough the earth is orbiting around the sun right 365 days it takes to orbit 93 million miles away do you know how fast the earth is traveling through space to do that do you know my, do you know how many miles an hour 
you travel in orbit in space around the sun in one day. Not a very clean orbit here, is it? 1.6 million miles in a day. You have never had a day, even though you wasted it, where you've done nothing. You are a space traveler. You're spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. You're traveling 1.6 million miles every day of your life. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never once got down on my knees and prayed, Jesus, please, Jesus, keep the planet in orbit. Please, keep it spinning. Spin planet, spin. I have never once. Have you? He upholds all things. By the power of His Word. And that Jesus is the Jesus who connects us in love to His Father through whom we live. So, two quick, again, two quick things I want to point down to it, point, point, bring into our lives. If you are here this morning and you are a seeker, you're not sure of this Christianity, you're kind of checking it out, maybe you came with friends, just not sure about this Jesus deal. May I humbly say something directly to you? Don't take my word for it as to who Jesus is. Don't take the media's word for it. Don't take anyone else's. Go to the original source. Read the gospel. Participate in our Steal a Bible program there in the back of the chairs. Those Bibles are there to be taken and stolen. If you don't have one, what you need to do is take one and like two-thirds of the way, there's the Gospel of Mark. Read the Gospel of Mark. If you want to know who Jesus, who God is, look at Jesus. Jesus puts the Father God into words. So read about Jesus and you'll know who God is. I've never forgotten the story of the former Harvard chaplain, George Buttrick. Years ago, students would come in and, you know, disillusioned that first or second year of college. I don't know if I believe in God anymore. And uh, Buttrick would make some tea, sit down, and he'd say, tell me who you think this God is you don't believe in anymore. I probably don't believe in that God either. And then he would open the Bible and just start reading together. This is who God is. Jesus puts God into words. Jesus is the corrective to all our assumptions about God. If you want to know what Waterstone's about, who Jesus is, go to the original source. Read the Gospel. But those of you who are following Christ, just a friendly and I hope convicting reminder. We cannot approach with this high language that Paul uses, these kind of throw-in lines about the Father and Jesus and being one. We cannot approach the whole idea of religion then this way. We can't say that here's the shelf of religions and yet Jesus is just one of many options that people have. We can't do that. Do you know why? Because the claims Jesus made, He does not allow us to do that. For instance, throwaway line, Mark or Luke chapter 10, Luke 10, Jesus is teaching, and he, he, he makes this kind of line almost in passing ways. It's, oh yeah, and, and I saw Satan fall out of heaven. It was like a thunderbolt in the sky. And you're like, wait a minute. Jesus, you're saying you were there before the universe was made? You were there when Satan and evil and all that crushed into the universe? Yeah, you should have seen it. 
who is this man? Or how about Matthew 25? Jesus is preaching, preaching, and He says, when the Lord, me, I, return in glory, I will have everyone line up as a shepherd, and on this side will be the goats, and on this side will be the sheep. Jesus' point is that every person will stand before Christ to determine their eternal destiny. And that dividing line is what they did with Jesus. Now you can imagine if I stood up here and said that to you, what would you think? Who is this man? My point is this. When it comes to believing in Jesus Christ, He is not just one of the gods that Paul talks about that sits on the shelf. The claims he made won't allow that. He is either the one who came from the Father to connect us to God, the one who is creator and sustains all things by the power of His Word. He's either that God and we should fall down before Him and say, command me! Or, He is a sham. He is like an egotistical, megalomaniacal liar to say the things He said. You see, when it comes to responding to Jesus, those are your options. You either fall down and He's your Savior, or you walk away. He's crazy. The only way to respond to Jesus, Waterstone, are you hearing? The only way to respond to Jesus is extremely. Paul says, every single Christian argument and thing we fight over starts there with who Jesus is. All right? And we submit to him. So now, having that knowledge, let's quickly talk about what it looks like when it comes out of us as we treat other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is very interesting pastoral counsel that Paul gives to us, and we can learn a lot how to connect with other people from these words. So first of all, in verse 7, Paul says about the weak, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. But Paul's point here is when we approach the weak, anyone who has a real struggle and any the things we've mentioned about that Christians fight over, Paul says that we need to get to know the story of the weak. There's probably a reason why they hold the conviction that they do. So for instance, these ones who were angry about them eating meat and idols, it probably, when they walked into the temple, they'd have all kinds of bad memories come back about their previous pre-Christ life. Maybe the smells would really remind them of bad memories. The, whatever it was, they have reasons that associating sacrificial food causes their conscience to be triggered. So what we as the strong need to do is sit down with them and say, tell me your story. And we're listening for why that might trigger their conscience so deeply. What we're su suggesting is that the first step of the strong loving the weak is sitting down with them to hear their story. 
We want to intellectually engage with them. Hear their reasons for why they believe what they believe. And then we commit to enduring that. And while we... And so, we create space in our lives for them. And we honor God's pace of growth for them. We don't rush it. And while we're waiting and while we're engaging and teaching, we don't eat meat so that they won't be offended in their presence. We honor the weak by listening to their story. So let me illustrate this. I, I saw a first class real life example of this church in New England. Uh, they had their small group kickoff and this brand new group formed and the group was kind of younger Christians in their 30s and uh, they um, had, had kids but they they got a babysitter everyone was in the room they had this meal together and as was common in in this church I mean the younger people they, they had no uh, scruples about alcohol I mean the, the three major food groups in New England are brats burgers and lobster uh, washed down with Samuel Adams that's what the group did well the leader noticed that there was this one couple that was kind of keeping to themselves and initially he thought they were just maybe a little shy a little hesitant you know they didn't know each other but as the night went on, he just really could tell they were a bit troubled. They were a bit like agitated at being there. So as the other couples began to leave, the really sharp small group leader pulled the couple aside and said, look, I noticed that you didn't really engage much in the group. It seemed like it was hard for you to be here. Tell me about that. And the husband, speaking for his wife, said, yeah, he said, we have trouble in social environments where there's alcohol. Because my wife's dad was an alcoholic, a violent one. And even the smell of beer is a million bad memories to her. And it's really hard for her to be around it. So the small group leader asked the couple permission to share that with the rest of the group. And he committed to them, we want you in this group. So let's talk about this some more. With their permission, he went to the other group leaders that week, or the other group members, told them the story, and they, as a group, committed for their small group, they would not drink alcohol. There is the strong honoring the weak. There is a preferring grace community. There is someone hearing the story behind the conviction and then responding with empathy and love. Does that sound good? That's how it works. That's what we should be so the first part is that we need to enter into the lives of the weak and hear their story paul goes on then because th what was happening is the strong weren't listening notice be careful here's our our theme see watch that the exercise of your rights your freedom in christ do not become a stumbling block to the weak for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in the idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. I want to first draw your attention to the language, the heavy language. The strong are exercising their freedom at the expense of the weak, and there's destroyed, there's stumbling block, there's sin, there's fall. There's a little later on, it says wound. This heavy language. The strong are so tolerant about all the issues, but they're intolerant about the people. 
and they're going to exercise their freedom, and who cares if it hurts? Destroys them. Uh, verse 11 is just an amazing verse in the Greek because the word orders change, so Paul's emphasizing. The verse actually starts with the word destroyed, and it ends with the word died. In other words, your behavior, strong people, is destroying the weak for whom Christ died. That's the massive damage that's happening here because the strong are exercising their freedom at the expense of the weak. What would cause a person to do that? I wrestled with that some this week. Uh, I remembered reading years ago a, a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, revivalist in the 1600s, 1700s. First president of Princeton, by the way. He... Um, he had this sermon series on 1 Corinthians 13. I think it was 15 messages. And in one of the messages, he talks about how love does not dishonor another brother or sister. And he talks about what would cause that to happen. What would cause the strong to exercise their freedom at the expense of the weak is what he calls a censorious spirit. Bear with me now as we go back to the 1600s in New England. Here, listen to the preaching a censorious spirit appears in a forwardness to judge evil of the qualities of others. It appears in a disposition to overlook their good qualities and to think them destitute of such qualities when they are not, or to make very little of them, or to magnify their ill qualities and make more of them than is just, or to charge them with those ill qualities that they have not. Some are very apt to charge others with ignorance and folly and other contemptible qualities when they in no sense deserve to be esteemed thus by them. Some seem very apt to entertain a very low and despicable opinion of others. Apt to entertain a very low and despicable opinion of others. And so to represent them to their associates and friends when a charitable disposition would discern many good things in them to balance or more than balance the evil and frankly would own them to be persons not to be despised. And some are ready to charge others with those morally evil qualities that they are free from or to charge them with such qualities in a much higher degree than they at all deserve. Thus, some have prejudiced against some of their neighbors that they regard them as a great deal more proud sort of persons, more selfish or spiteful or malicious than they really are. Paul's point, Edward's point. It's not wrong to have a negative opinion of what others are doing, their convictions about, their scruples about things. It's not wrong to evaluate those. It's not wrong to have an opinion and, and really come to the conclusion that they're wrong. What's wrong is how you treat them as wrong. And what's wrong is about how inside you feel about them. In other words, it's not wrong to say a person is wrong. It's wrong to enjoy that they're wrong. It's wrong to make yourself, to, to, to you, you are judge, and you come up with the negative evaluations. You write them. You tell others the negative evaluations. You enjoy reading negative evaluations about other people. So let me illustrate from my own, the depths of my sin here. You do it in your profession. But when I hear of a pastor, like a high-profile pastor that falls into immorality, wrecks their marriage, has an affair, there is a part of me that is grieved. 
and the da- I've seen it firsthand, the damage that does, the, the mourning, the loss, such damage to the church. I grieve that. But if I'm honest, and I will be, there's also another part in my heart that says, yeah, I knew it. All those thousands of people that go to that church, too good to be true. It was a circus. They're getting what's coming to them. Censorious spirit. Paul says, when it comes to these conflicts we have in church, we need to enter the story of the week and we need to search our own heart for a censorious spirit. Why am I treating them so intolerantly? And to wrap it up, with the primary motivation for doing it, the last verses, 12 and 13, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. This uh, censorious spirit is like the blood that flows through our veins. It's so deep in us that it takes a strong antidote to get it out. And that antidote is Jesus. We must look at Jesus. His radical welcome of us. Let's go back to the bridge, right? We didn't know there was a bridge. We were lost. We were wandering around, wondering what things are about. Jesus laid down His life on that bridge and made it so that we can be connected to the Father and have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Jesus welcomed me radically. If I could say it this way, Jesus made space in His life for me. The weakest of the weak. So how can I then look at another sister or brother because of the way I've been welcomed and not make space in my life for them and walk with them? As the text said, for whom Christ died. May I remind you that you have never looked into the eyes of another sister or brother no matter the issues you agree or disagree about which Jesus does not say, I died for them, for whom Christ died. So having that welcome from Christ, we walk around this planet, especially with our sisters and brothers in Christ, hand palms toward them, for whom Christ died, for whom Christ died, for whom Christ died, for whom Christ died. It changes everything about the way we treat other brothers and sisters, especially those who annoy us and frustrate us for whom Christ died. Can we be that community? Can we live that kind of preferring grace? That is the question. Whether we will use our knowledge of Christ to love the weak and bear up under with them. What I thought it would be good for us to do as we approach the Lord's table is to actually express our knowledge of who Jesus is by reciting a creed together And then after that, practice an ancient custom called the peace. So let's begin with the creed. Would you please stand as we affirm our faith in Jesus Christ by reciting one of the great creeds about Him, the Nicene Creed. Out loud with me, would you read? Let's do it together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father,
God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That's what we believe. That's what we know. And now we take that knowledge and it impacts the way we treat one another. We look at each other with palms toward them and say, for whom Christ died. So what I'd like to do now have, we've experienced this radical welcome from Jesus. Let's share this radical welcome with one another by sharing the ancient uh, custom, the tradition called the peace. So would you, those people you've already met, turn to them again and say, the peace of the Lord. The peace of the Lord. Let's share the peace together. Please be seated. That night on which Jesus was betrayed, He left us a way to remember Him that has shaped the church with His welcoming love for 2,000 years. He took bread and He broke it and He said, this bread represents My body, broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember Me. And in the same way, after the supper, He took the cup. And He said, this cup represents My blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember Me. So we come now, Jesus inviting us to His table, the bread of heaven, the cup of forgiveness. We invite anyone who knows and loves Jesus to come and be with Him at his table, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, and you can eat it among, down here at the front or take it back to your seat. Let us again experience the radical welcome of Jesus to us.